Welcome to the Hey Salespeople podcast, where we focus on delivering immediately actionable best practices for sales professionals. I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan from SalesLoft. Hey, salespeople. It's my great pleasure today to welcome Yako Vanderkoy to the show. Welcome, Yako. Hi, Jeremy. Thanks for having me. How are you? I'm doing great. It's great to chat with you again. I know every time we chat, we go deeper and deeper. So this will this will be a pleasure for people who have not seen Yako either online or on stage, which I've had the pleasure of doing. He is the founder of Winning by Design. They are a sales consulting and training firm. Love to just start by asking my two favorite questions. The first is, what is one of your top most memorable sales books and why? You may find it odd, but you know, like I don't really read a lot of books as it relates to sales because primarily I think that they skew me in the wrong direction. You know, like if I read a book about people who've learned from talking to customers, I talk to customers and people every day. There was a LinkedIn post that I was reading this morning where somebody said, effectively, you know, sales books don't teach you how to sell. There was a little subtlety to it, which is, yes, yeah, sales books will give you insight, but the way to learn to get better as a salesperson is to combine insight with repeated practice and expert feedback. You said you don't read a lot of sales books because it, it sort of biases you. What did you mean by that? Most people put their interpretation on. Most sales books do not have an academic approach or detailed research behind it, but it's very opinionated. The insights that they provide are what I call correlation-driven, not causation-driven. And as a former engineer, I'm looking primarily for causation and not correlation. In statistics, it's much easier to prove correlation. There are no particular formulas that show causation. For you, what is the bar you set to you know, feel comfortable that something is truly causation? You're running a sales team and you know, like your CEO tells you, I need you to double your sales. What is a traditional conventional VP of sales say back? Say, okay, in order to double the sales, I need what? Hopefully double the activity. So double the activity is definitely one. Double the salespeople is another. Double the leads is another common thing. What that all means is that we're living in an additive world. We are used to very linear style thinking in the world of sales. So if I want to double the outcome, and generally I want to double the input. That is not right. In the world of particularly SaaS sales, you know, like we are looking at it as a system and not as a single function. Some of your listeners may have heard me talk about, you know, like 10% improvement across seven metrics that I measure results also in double the sales. So what I can say is what if I increase my leads by 10%? What if my conversion rate from MQL to SQL increases by 10%? What if my discovery call quality improves by 10% and therefore my yield on that improves? Everything that I improve by 10%, if I find seven metrics that I'm measuring along the line, then I have double the sales. And I think that is the process where we are currently are entering. Small improvements yield big impacts. Is it that you feel that sales leaders in general gravitate towards pulling one lever at a time and maybe that was successful in the past, but you're not seeing that as being successful currently? When you say sales leaders, the current sales leaders do not work as a homogeneous group that we can call you know, all together in sales leaders. I think that there's a clear distinction between hard workers often alpha leaders that just, you know, like cracking the whip and think that productivity is the end all be all. And, you know, like there's people who have started to realize that it doesn't work any longer. Those people who have younger sales organizations come quicker to that conclusion that cracking the whip and harder efforts do not result in better results very quickly. They already are, you know, learning that the hard way. 
if you're working with sales teams that are like have fewer deals, you know, if you're only dependent on five or 10 deals a year at like half a million dollars, lucky you, then you're in a different world. But those of us who have to have salespeople of whose individual performers per month need to close anywhere from two to 10, 20 deals, you're living in a volume world and you do not operate along the same B2B principles that have governed B2B for the longest time. Well, if doubling is best done through a series of small improvements, it must be that there are certain levers that one should focus on. What are some of the the levers that would be in that series of things to look at? First of all, you know, we have to look at process versus people. If in today's world, if your primary goal, if something goes right and you say we need to hire more people and something goes wrong, and your primary response is, okay, we need to fire some people, which is in most cases, that's the boardroom conversation, right? If the results are right or wrong, the CEO will ask for more people, less people. The VP of sales conversation will be all about that. That is a wrong conversation. And it may even be the conversation with the wrong person, mind you. I'll come back to that in a second. But it's the wrong conversation. The first thing that we need to look at is the process, right or wrong. What is working and what can we do more of? For example, yourself, you know, being with SalesLoft, tools is a way to improve something and create more efficiency and effectiveness out of a person's productivity. Doesn't mean that hiring is going to solve that. What are your thoughts about this average tenure statistic that you hear all the time that the average tenure of a CRO is kind of two years plus or minus some number of months? Jeremy, what is the difference for you between a CRO and a VP of sales? For me, it's the same thing. In theory, the CRO would also own marketing and customer success, but I think that's, that's actually rarely the case. In most companies, the CRO is just an alpha male who needed a promotion because he didn't want to feel threatened by any other C-level officer in the company. That's why we promoted them to CRO. And that's got to stop. If you're CRO, your, your responsibility is for revenue. I'm sorry for getting feisty. I'm not getting feisty on you. I'm getting feisty on the industry. If you're looking at the revenue and we see where growth comes from, we should start treating customer success and what happens post-sale way, way, way more seriously. And it is, you know, continues to be like a big issue that we don't do that. And that, I think, is an area where growth comes from, but doesn't get the recognition for it. And as a, as a result, if I have a CRO that is a former VP of sales and alpha who primarily is trying to manage people on activity, now I got a growth issue. We step into that and we go like, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> Guys and gals, this maniacal focus on securing logos got to stop if you want to start pursuing growth real seriously. We'll definitely get to customer success in a second, but I'm going to hold you to an answer on the CRO question. And rather than call it a CRO, because it's a charged term, you know, let's call it a VP of sales. What are your thoughts on the fact that the VP of sales typically only sticks around, according to the research, for about two years, plus or minus a few months? It depends on which stage the company is at, Jeremy. So, you know, like if a company goes through rapid growth, it may enter and need different skill sets from the VP of sales. And if the VP of sales cannot grow alongside of their experience set, it would not be fair for the company to teach the VP of sales to do it. And as a result, lose the momentum that they have. And what we see, with, particularly with rapid growth companies, they may very quickly go through different go-to-market phases where they need a different kind of leadership. In what way is a customer success leader different than the alpha male you described as the typical VP of sales? I didn't say alpha male, I said alpha. I believe that you know, alphas can go both come in male and female. But you know, point being here is that the alpha in particular is a challenge and can be also a great opportunity. We have to recognize that alphas come in two kinds, the kinds that are generating and create great sales process, sales approaches, and, and, and that can be copied by others. 
and the alphas that do not have that same skill set, but act and behave the same way. And unfortunately, as we know with top performers, only one out of 10 can be a top performer. The other nine remain to be like people who just blab a lot, so to speak. That's one. And if you look at customer success, it is not what they can do differently, Jeremy. It is what we as an industry need to do differently. We need to recognize where the growth comes from in sales. Obviously, it's good if a logo was secured, but if we're not securing the recurring revenue from that, then you know, like that hurts us a lot more and a lot faster. Let me give you an example. The other day, I was working with a person, with a comp- an organization, and I asked for the compensation of the person that was acquiring the sales acquisition. And that person was bringing in on average 300K, 400K a year or something like that, and was compensated for that right at about $150,000, $180,000. And I, I looked at that and I'm like, may I ask, what is your head of customer success uh, compensated? And the answer I got is, well, they're compensated about 100, 110 right now. And I'm like, and how, how much revenue is, is he or she responsible for uh, on any given year? Oh, about $9 million. Now, obviously, $9 million is a very different number than uh, 300K, 400K. And acquisition has a different behavior. Don't get me wrong. Both have different comp plans that should be treated differently. But the gap between them is significant. If I take 20 salespeople... 20 top salespeople, and I would charge a company for training them $50,000, many companies would not bat a big eye. And why? Because they would come to the conclusion, hey, that's acquisition, that's important. If I would take 20 customer success reps and I say like, hey, how much money do they do they garnish every year? $20 million, whatever it is. And I would charge 50,000 people. Most customer success organizations would not, it would not even pick up the phone, you know, like would never return a call, just too much. That level of discrepancy has got to end. I'm with you. You do not see the ecosystem of customer success kind of consulting and training that you see in the sales world. That's exactly right. And I think that that is an incredible missed opportunity. There are parts that we need to train customer success on traditional and conventional sales methods. I think they really could benefit things as how to have a proper conversation, opening calls, coming to an agreement on next steps. I think these are great. But there's a lot of things that I believe customer success actually does better than salespeople. And I think this customer success people can teach sales a little bit about how to do better. So I don't want to propagate a problem that we have had historically, that of a maniacal focus on logo acquisition and propagate that into a customer success behavior. I think that's totally wrong. If you were advising a customer success leader on a customer success enablement program, what elements would that have in it? First of all, conversation. I think it's absolutely key that people learn how to have a conversation. Some in customer success have that natively. That's why they grew into that role, but a number you know, do not. How do you hold a proper conversation? I'll give you an example. Um, talk to me in a story about what you did this weekend. Sure. Had a great weekend. I'd spent some time with the family, went to the movies, did some gardening, did some reading. Oh, which movie did you see? I went to go see a uh, movie that is kind of a, a horror movie called Midsummer. Midsummer. Oh my gosh. I haven't seen it. I really wanted to do it. This weekend, I wanted to go see a movie. I actually wanted to do it by myself, blah, blah, blah. Where did I take the conversation? My direction. That's not a conversation. If I see it and say, oh, what made you pick that movie? Why did you like it or not like it? Now we're having a conversation targeted towards you. To continue to ask probing questions that lead off of the person rather than, than just using that as a segue into what you want to say. 
Exactly. And which is a very common skill that salespeople have, have been using in order to set their agenda, as in the wrong way. The right way is to lead and understand what the customer is and use it as a diagnostic technique in this case. That's a consultative approach that can often be very well perfected by customer success people. Learning people the art of conversation, closed-ended, open-ended questions. How do you mix them? How do you avoid that it becomes an interrogation? How do you make customers feel comfortable with the conversation while you get the required information to properly diagnose the situation and help them out? I definitely see the distinction between the interrogate versus ask and listen, but where do you draw the distinction between the sort of open-ended nature of the conversation and the need to lead them to some extent towards a particular outcome or next step? It's the very same thing that a doc, when you step into a doctor's office, you're not there to have chit chat about what you did on the weekend and what your dog is doing and whatnot. You're there because you're there for a reason. You have a problem that needs to be fixed. The more information I'm going to give you, the more watered down my diagnosis is going to be. If I talk to you for half an hour, I get a different picture that is probably less accurate than if, if I talk to you for like three, four minutes, what your key problems are. Okay, other skill sets that I think that are absolutely critical for today's uh, customer success people are the ability to catenate the outcome of something into something positive. How do I connect that? For example, setting the, at the beginning of the goal, the goal of what the outcome is, is a key requirement for most meetings, but for customer success people that can be very, very well applied. If not, I just have checking calls and quarterly business reviews where both parties just want to do one thing, check the box and move on to the next topic. Do you think customer success people should have commercial responsibility or simply kind of service and support responsibility? Of course, customer success should have a commercial responsibility there. They're responsible for a lion's share of a SaaS business revenue, but they should be properly taught on how to manage that. We can't just expect people that you know, previously didn't have that experience solely to master a skill set, that, of some of which is the hardest skill sets needed. So, you know, of course, but they need to be trained. I don't know that it's an of course. I mean, I've seen organizations sort of go back and forth or consider variations of have the customer success people do those value reviews, introduce features and functionalities, drive usage, react to low NPS scores or what have you, but then put the commercial responsibility onto an account manager, for example, to actually do any sort of renewal and upsell. Okay. It depends on the business. If it's a high velocity business, I do not know if I want to add an additional cost of the salesperson while the customer success person has the customer on the line. Set up another meeting, go over more details. You know, like if, if the customer is ready for a renewal upgrade, why do I have to hand it over? It does depend on context and cost and complexity and so on. If you're managing a $20 million AT&T account, your customer success identifies an issue of one of the passwords doesn't work. Of course, that is not the right time and place for a commercial. And clearly in those accounts, you separate roles and you go even further. You may have an entire 20-person account team on an AT&T in a deal that size. But if we're talking about high velocity selling, where primarily we're looking at people managing, you know, like 50, 100, 250 accounts, if you're looking at a customer success rep, then by all means, if it's there and, you know, it's being offered, then make sure that you'll be able to tackle it and, and move forward with it. Are there other things as you look out there that are driving you nuts when you see them? Yes. What we see in many companies that the diversity on the team is, is trending downwards as it relates to age. So we see more organization with an average age between 25 and 30 versus, you know, like where previously it was probably more between 35 and 40, 45-ish. 
I think that it is primarily a shift to lower the cost. And it comes from, you know, like enterprise sales are generally, you know, like you have to pay an enterprise rep that is closing anywhere between two to four million dollars in perpetual software or hardware sales a year. You generally pay that person somewhere between three fifty and and five hundred thousand dollars in the Bay Area, right? Bring in two to four million dollars, you get paid between three fifty and five hundred K. That may sound a lot, but for perpetual sales, if you look that back, that is, you know, like you can live with that kind of 10% cost-ish. Yeah, that's on the low end for SaaS, right? Because SaaS, you know, 20 is common, but you see 25, 30% cost of sales. So 10 is certainly on the low end, which is which is a great number for SaaS. That's right. There's more cost involved, obviously. So it's not just that, but, you know, it's more involved, but that is the compensation. If you see at an average SaaS deal where, you, let's say, you close a 10K, 20K SaaS deal, three a month, you calculate it out, you can pay that salesperson simply 350 to 500K. It depends on the renewal and the upgrade and all that, but most companies, you know, cannot make that economically feasible. And for good reasons, if you calculate it out, math will tell you where you can and cannot go. And in the end, you cannot go there. Yeah, I mean, I find that most SaaS companies, AEs who are serving the mid-market doing deals of that size, they can typically bring in sort of 600K to 800K as a, as a typical range. And if you pay 20% on that, right, you're looking at 120 to 160K. You can't pay more than that. If you are, you know, like a, a person of 40, somewhere in mid 40s to mid 50s, you're living in the Bay Area, you have two kids in school, you have a car payment, that money simply won't do. The whole lifestyle that you've grown into simply doesn't allow you to take on that payment. So companies cannot afford those kind of folks, and therefore they trend towards the, the, the younger ages where people are more affordable. Maybe the mix shift is simply because companies have found an economic model to target SMB and mid-market in a way that didn't exist in the past? We are experiencing quite an uh, epidemic kind of uh, non-performers against quota. And we see it in three ways. The average amount of non-performers as a percentage of overall is significantly less than if you go 10 years ago. I used to put the marker at 80% of quota, not 100%. In sales, we've always, you know, for the longest time as I was a VP of sales, everybody's being 100% on quota. But if everybody hits 80%, essentially, I as the leader should be able to cover for the number I was responsible for. What we see per today, that there's a significant bigger amount of people missing quota. That's one. Second thing is we see the gap that they're missing quota with to be significantly bigger. And then the third one, which is one of the most telling ones to me, is that we go from hero to zero. We see it commonly that a top performer from one month does not propagate into the next month, next month, next month, or at least within it. What we see is they literally go one month top performer, next month, like they totally flamed out. And then it may take him another six months or sometimes two quarters to get back to be top performer. Those three things, they miss the number by a larger amount, more people missing it and from hero to zero are clearly telling me we do not have a people issue. What we have is a process issue. If we look back at what that process issue is, then we quickly come to the realization. Yeah, the fact that they're, uh, that these younger people are in positions of, of, of sales without the training and blah, 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 that clearly is an issue to me. The objection salespeople will say is, well, it's not that the salespeople are any worse or the environment's any different. It's that simply that managers and leaders are setting quotas higher and higher and higher. That could be a reason to miss quota also is not process, but simply that the quota was set too high. How would you respond to that? <laughs> okay. So when I say we have a systemic failure, the last person I want to blame on this is the newcomer in the game. I'm not going to play the rookie on the field for us losing the game. 
And if I take a 25, 26 year old sales professional, by all means, they may be a rookie. You know, like there's not many who have like 10 years of experience under their belt. I'm not going to blame this on them. And so indeed, you're true that setting the quota is one thing. Managing them to quota is another thing. All these things. If you are, you know, like a 20 year veteran, your negotiation of quota is a key skill set that you have learned to acquire over that 20 years and that you have a relationship with your boss that often developed over years as well. So clearly that is of influence. We have, you know, like younger people in the sales team and we need to make them productive. And that I think is one of the top issues that we're struggling with in sales that managers. And if I look around all companies, there's two or three things that most CROs, CEOs are dealing with these days. And that is like, how do I get my team to be productive? One more objection that salespeople will, will give you. They'll complain that the issue is accounts, that I don't have enough accounts is what they'll say, or I got all the Glen Gary accounts. There's no more good accounts. Is that something that you're hearing out there? And do you think that's also a sign of a process problem? Yes, I'm hearing that all the time. And yes, that is a process issue. And it's primarily a process issue for, for 2x, like I said. In order to have twice as many deals, I got to do twice as many, have twice as many leads, twice as many accounts. That's where most of that, or that some of that comes from. I think that if a person doesn't know how to, to deal with an account, let me give you an example. If I'm calling on a manager and I'm selling uh, sales loft as a platform, I'm calling on a manager and the manager says to me, oh, you know what? I'm not really interested. You know, like my team is doing well. I can write off that account, spoke to the sales manager, sales manager says, you know, like they have no need for a sales automation platform. Is that person a qualified person? No, the sales manager is not a qualified person. The head of sales operations, maybe. Obviously the CRO, uh, absolutely, right? But you know, like you cannot disqualify an account by an unqualified resource. And so these are things that they, you need to teach, you need to share. If they don't know that, then you give them 100 accounts. Who's going to help them across those 100 accounts see which accounts can be truly disqualified and save them a bunch of times? And which accounts are just like, dude, you just call them. You got an email that said they're not interested. You're just trying to get a new account so you can chew on it faster, right? And that latter is what happens most of the time. You've been doing this a long time, and you just mentioned sort of a degree of seniority, opinions on the you know call high versus start high or start low. There's all kinds of methods. It depends on what you're selling. If I sell a large scale platform, 100K, 150K, you know, we were working with TradeShift and we'd be working with some of the larger cloud storage providers and you're selling large platforms, 150, 250K, you generally start low because by the time you go up to seniority, you need to know what you're talking about. You need to be relevant to them. If you have high volume and you need to close, you know, like 5, 10, 15 deals a month, you can call up the CEO of Adobe and try to sell them that platform, whole different ball of wax. And so we got to make sure that when we give advice and the things that I'm talking about, that we know which market are we selling to and what is the best advice to give. On that lower end, you may be better off with, uh, with a manager, uh, director of sorts. And if you can get to the CEO of a 40 person company, by all means. But getting to a 2,000-person company and, and asking the CEO there, that may not be in the, the best interest of doing that in a high-volume business. You said if you're selling to the enterprise, you need to be relevant when you, when you get up there. What, is, what does that mean? What would you expect a salesperson to do after they speak to the lower levels in order to be relevant to the senior exec? If I won a bank account, let's say I just in North America won Wells Fargo, large account, right? And so now what I can say is, hey, you know what? 
I want to win, win more financial institutions. Okay, so financial institution is, a, what we, is what we call a metric that indicates a fit. I can say, hey, I want to win more financial institutions in North America. Okay, North America, financial institutions, over whatever, 100,000 employees. And then the third one I can say is, who do we sell to the CRO? Oh, I want to sell to more CROs in North America, over 100,000 employees uh, in the financial markets. All that is called a fit. I would not consider that useless, but if you have just that information, then please do not bother to call me up. We play this exercise when we role play that you're calling me up and I am that targeted person. I am the whatever CRO at this company. And I simply keep asking the question, why did you call me? Why did you call me? Why did you call me? And if you see the answers that I got, it's like, well, you are the chief revenue officer at the company. Yes, that doesn't make, give you a reason to call me. And if you go through it, then you go, there's no really reason to call me. I'm just a fit. You just picked me out because I was wearing a white t-shirt and blue jeans. I'm a fit for you, right? What we're looking for is what we call pain indicators. And these, in our world, we're looking for like, I picked you because I believe I can impact your business on this reason. You launched last month or you stated two weeks ago in your quarterly announcement that X. On a video, you said this. Your current failure rate that we've spoken to at lower level was Y. Did you know that Marianne, head of Bob's, told me that? These are all very relevance-driven indicators. Relevancy is make it feel like when you talk to the customer that you truly understand their business and know what's going on in their business and not just because they're the CRO or CFO, whatever, at the financial institution. You hear some pundits say to salespeople, don't be a free consultant. How does that jibe with the work that one needs to do in order to build the value story in an enterprise account? I'm addressing you as if you were to pun it. What do you mean with being, don't be a free consultant? You need to have them do some work in order for you to do some work. My whole approach is the following. Out-educate your competitor. The better you educate your customer, trust in one thing, that the best educated customer makes the best decision and that 50% of the time that will end up being you. And I live by 50% win rate, okay? Out-educate your customer. Salespeople think about educating their customer in a lot of different ways. Some of them think about it as heavily educating them about your, you know, your product and not necessarily features and functionality with a tie to value. But then there's other education, which is to be a trusted advisor to them on, on matters that go way beyond the scope of your product. Are you referring to both of those? And, and if yes, what's the balance between those? No, you can't treat salespeople all as one homogeneous. For example, if I'm ready to buy and it's between SalesLoft and one of its diehard competitors, and I'm asking you, what are the, the key differentiators? You better sell me hard on what the difference between those different. If you're going to try to educate me on, on you know, like 20 levels deep, you're losing my interest. Now, if I'm in the beginning of my sales stage and you know, like I'm you know, more like looking at platforms, then you can educate me. So already where I'm in the journey, you know, like tells me the whole difference. Where I've been in the past, a really good question that we like to ask, we recommend people to ask during the sales process is, may I ask, have you bought a similar platform like this before? And if they say, no, haven't, this is my first time, would you like me to educate a little bit of you? And then they say, yes, that's a great lead in, right? It's like an, a closed-ended question allowing you to ask a few open-ended questions to follow. Simply ask, have you bought a platform like this before? If they say, yes, I have, you can say, oh my gosh, love to hear it. How did that go? How was the experience? And again, you have an entire proper conversation around that. What technique you should use, solution selling, which is hard selling on features and differentiators, consultative selling, which is diagnosing through question-based technique, or provocative selling, 
which is simply straight out telling your customer how to do their business because you've researched them. Those three approaches can be applied in different stages uh, to different kind of customer. Salespeople so often, whether they admit it or not, go to, hey, we have this feature they don't have, we have that feature, blah, blah, blah. Those features may or may not even be relevant to the customer. It may not matter to the business problem they're trying to solve. What you just said is one that triggers me because I believe that the feature sell is, I would say, making a comeback. Other would say, Jocko was there all along. No, I totally believe that you can feature function sell, but you need to know when to do it. If it's between you and another sales performance platform, sales automation platform, and the two of you, you know, like are head to head and your engineering department has developed a feature that makes you clearly stand out. If you're my salesperson, you better freaking push that feature and make the customer know that that is the most single most important feature for the next 12 to 18 months. Our salespeople, when they listen to this, will find that extremely liberating because we're always trying to coach them towards value selling. Or at least if you do talk about the feature to connect the feature to the value. If your salespeople are experts, then they give and surrender that advice and they provoke the customer into thinking differently. They can't ask that customer too many questions and feel like the customer's on the hot seat being tortured with all the questions. But yeah, like what I'm looking for here is just the ability. Now, I'll give you a clear cut example of what I, I like a modern sales professional to be. And this is a model sales professional, the sales acquisition sales. I could give a similar talk about what the modern sales professional in the customer success role need to do. I'm talking about the ability to switch between three different methodologies, at least. Solution selling, provocative selling, and consultative selling. In order to break open an account, I got to provoke a client. Are you aware that you're currently doing it wrong, for example? Are you aware that you're currently missing out on $3 million in opportunity a month? These are forms of provocation, whether it's the exactly right way I said it or not, but you get the idea. The customer says, oh, what? Where are you getting the information from? Well, I spoke to Marianne on your team. She's the head of sales ops. And she was telling me that currently with your 20 people, X, Y, Z. Now, did I get it right? Do you have 20 people? Customer says, yes. Now I'm starting to go into my consultative approach. I've provoked the action and I'm moving to consultative. I start to diagnose the problem. Do I get it right that productivity per rep is it important for you, as Marianne said? Yes, I got two close-ended yeses. Now I go into an open-ended question. Are you aware that seniority classification is one of the most important things that you can do in order to make a change? Person asks, what is seniority classification? Now I'm explaining it. I'm now maneuvering from provocative opening to a consultative middle play to a solution-based sell, and I do that in a span of five, six minutes. That's sales professionalism. As a former boxer, it was a whole different ball game when I started to do Muay Thai fighting, which involves the elbows and the knees and the legs. And nowadays, if we look at MMA, which has full ground wrestling. So if you speak today, today's sales professionals are more like a multidisciplinary technique like an MMA. You got to master all of them. You can't just be specialized in one. You can't just go provocative sales training and think that you're going to get it done. It won't. And oh, by the way, and this is where you know a lot of my passion comes from, when you're a 26, 27, 28-year-old sales professional, you're supposed to be able to master these techniques, which previously took me at least mid-30s before I felt comfortable with maneuvering that. That's a lot to tackle three different techniques they need to master in order to break open an account to which they have been torpedoed to death with cold calls and emails. Like, that's not as easy as it was 10, 15, 20 years ago. No matter what all these sales experts say, oh, you know, like here's a phone list to start, pick it up and start calling. No, 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 no. The world was a different place. You hear about all these different approaches to selling, whichever synonym you use, but the truth is that it's not an or, it's really an and, and it's a contextual and. 
And I, I love your example of moving from provocative selling to consultative selling to solution selling. And I would assume that there are other instances where you know you you get in there and you need to figure out which of those three hats you start with. That's right. It's a particular stance, right? Which stance do you start off with? In order, and this is extremely important to me. When I was taught martial arts, you have two options. Are you going to be a street fighter that's going to raw people or are you going to do something good with it? I trust and we take great pride in training people that we entrust with the skill set to maneuver so they don't abuse it on customers. Because if you really master these techniques well, you've mastered a technique that you can overwhelm a customer with. That is just so unfair if you then force feed them your, the product that you're selling. And SaaS to me has always been the great enabler for me to set finally the techniques that I thought my customers asked for free, set these techniques free. And that is to help them. Because if not, if we're just trying to close a deal and win, win the logo, if that's what we're all about, then SaaS is gonna, in SaaS, we're going to be punished brutally with both churn and continued costs that we have to invest in a customer to retain them. This is the best time of sales. This is where the true professionals are coming out. Yako, how can people get in touch with you? We have a few things that I think that are helpful. And this is a big belief. We have started, Jeremy, I'm not kidding. We've started to push most of our training into the public domain. And you can literally go to the YouTube channel. There's over 100 training videos that are in the public domain. We have an entire course published in the public domain. Dominique, Dan, and I believe that we, yeah, we want to change the world. Consulting business is, is healthy. And in result, we want to give back. And I've always found that when things go good, you got to give back. And so we're publishing a lot of this in order to help young generations pick up sales and get there faster compared to, you know, like the word of mouth. YouTube.com slash winning by design will get you there. Second, all these designs, we have created charge and visualizations that you can get on Lucidchart. Lucidchart.com slash WBD. And then you get all these templates with integrated training. So you can literally put your finger on it and follow it by step by step. And then last one, you know, we have published many books on this. So simply typing Jocko winning by design in Amazon will get you a slew of books as well. Jocko, thanks again so much for no, being on no, the podcast. No, no, oh, no, no. Oh, there's more. But wait, there's more. Now I want to learn from you. What's your key takeaway? Give me like a single key takeaway. You go like, boom, that was a, I walked away with a bloody nose or with an enlightened moment or whatever it was. For me, I think the enlightened moment was the thing that we ended on. If, if I reflect kind of back on the whole conversation, I'm with you on the correlation and causation. I think people are relatively, you know, they're kind of up to speed on that. I'm also with you on the importance of customer success and the importance of customer success enablement and enablement being underinvested in on the customer success side. So, I mean, I think that's something that I was familiar with. The thing I most appreciated was your perspective on, again, that, that whole progression of the provocative selling to consultative selling to solution selling. I think that's a really amazing advice for, for salespeople and for sales leaders. Great. Well, you know, like it's our responsibility and uh, I mean yours and mine to leave the next generation in a better state than we were. I know it took me, you know, a good 10, 15 years before I truly understood sales. We have to recognize we cannot expect that 60, 90, 180 days into the job that they are becoming the expert that took us five to 10 to 15 years to get there. Yeah, I guess we're, we, we're ending where we began, which is it's insights that you get from people like Yako and then practice and feedback. That's the only way to get there. And that does take time. Once again, I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan from SalesLoft. Laura Hall is our executive producer. Our artwork is by Greg Klingshern. This episode was edited by Peter Lopinto. 
Subscribe to us on your favorite app to learn more immediately actionable best practices from our awesome guests. Thanks for listening to the Hey Salespeople podcast.